The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Uh, If you would, take your Bibles with me and open up to the book of Ephesians. Uh, We're in the the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4. Earlier uh, this year, I was attending an ACBC uh, biblical counseling conference in California, and I ran into some of my former classmates from seminary, and uh, we were catching up with one another and giving updates on our ministries, and, and just to let you know that I do talk about you um, when, I'm, I'm, when I'm away, but uh, it's all positive. I always share how I, I love this church. I love what the Lord is, uh, is doing here, uh, but I, I do talk about you when I'm gone. And uh, when I gave the update on our church, I let them know that we were 10 years into our church plant, and one of my friends stopped me and said, George, it's been 10 years It's not a church plant anymore. It's just a church. (laughs) It's a church. You know, what makes you think that you're still a church plant? And when I stopped to think about it for a minute, I said, you know what? He's he's absolutely right. He's right. What makes me think that we're still a church plant? Is it because we don't own the building that we're meeting in? Uh, We know that the early church met in public spaces, private homes for the first 300 years of the existence of the church. The earliest evidence that we have of a dedicated space for worship uh, was back in the year 240 A.D., and uh, I know that we're in a Presbyterian church, but uh, one of the ways that they know that this was a dedicated space for worship is that there was a baptistry also in the building, so (laughs) they were being immersed, just to let you know. Um, But the church existed for hundreds of years without a dedicated space for worship, we don't have to wait until we have a, a picture, you know, with a construction hat and somebody with a shovel breaking ground on the new construction site, the building site, before we can call ourselves a church. The church is not a building. The church is the people. The people who gather together are the church. And that's just basic ecclesiology. Uh, do we still think of ourselves as a church plant because we need to grow and expand in our leadership? And uh, we do need to grow and expand in our leadership, but think about this. This past year, at the beginning of the the year, uh, we ordained our first lay elder, Jeff Weaver, and just yesterday, at the end of the year, we ordained our third elder at Baltimore Bible Church, Pastor Glenn Curry. So, So the Lord has provided for our church and is continuing to provide for our church in, in amazing and abundant ways. Now, elders are given to the church to set things in order, And uh, we have that. By God's grace, we have that. And uh, just this week, uh, we had an elder and deacon meeting. And as I was sitting there uh, with a table full full of men and elders, deacons, church leaders, my heart was just full of gratitude for what the Lord has done. As as we have this this group of strong, godly, qualified leaders, and uh, I know of churches that have been around for a lot longer that still don't have that kind of, of leadership. You know, so it was just very grateful, gratitude to the Lord for the kind of leadership that we enjoy here at Baltimore Bible Church. We've been tremendously blessed. Do we still think about ourselves as a church plant because there are certain ministries that haven't been developed yet? 
And yes, there are a lot of ministries that still need to be developed. Uh, We could use help with administration, hospitality, evangelism, assimilation. We could use more volunteers for our children's ministries. But can we stop for a minute and give God thanks for what he's already done in the church? God is continuing to do amazing things right here. This is only a fraction. I'll only speak about a fraction of what we could talk about. Our men's ministry has really grown and taken shape over this last year. Uh, Yesterday, we had a group of about 50 men uh, for our men's breakfast and and briefing yesterday, and that's a praise to God. Uh, Men are being uh, encouraged to take initiative and leadership and hold one another accountable. The women's ministry has been consistently mentoring our ladies here at Baltimore Bible Church for years, and I continue to hear about the the feedback from the the luncheons, from the the mentorship that happens here. 40 to 50 ladies uh, gathered together are impacted by their time together. We have an energetic youth group uh, that's built on top of the foundation of Scripture. Our young people are not just learning the Word, but they're learning how to interpret the Word and to use it in practical ways in their lives, and that's a blessing to hear about what the Lord has been doing here in our youth, as well as our children's uh, Sunday school classes, some 90 to 100 kids, and you already saw them exiting out of the, out of the, the worship center to, to go to their classes, and we're thankful and grateful for all of the workers uh, that are helping out with our children's ministries. Our worship ministry uh, continues to grow and develop, and uh, many of you have been encouraged to use your gifts and talents uh, for the worship and glory of our great God. I'm looking forward to our Christmas concert, and I'd put our Christmas concert right next to any other Christmas concert in the nation of uh, uh, just wonderful opportunities to to gather together to worship our Lord Jesus Christ and also to invite others uh, to participate with us. Our care ministry has been taking shape over this last year, as well as our benevolence ministry, and it's a joy to see the body taking care of the body, uh, thinking through ways to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. And in this next year, we're planning our first short-term missions trip uh, to assist a, a sister church in Ecuador. And uh, God is expanding our reach, not only through giving and prayer, uh, but also through partnering together in ministry and other ways of personal support. And we could go on. You know, I kind of feel like, uh, you know, the author of Hebrews when he says, and what more shall I say? You know, for time will fail me. You know, if I tell of the family retreats and the leadership training and marriage getaways and evangelistic outreaches, I mean, there's so much more that we could say about what the Lord is doing here. And as I thought about this Thanksgiving Sunday, uh, there's a lot that we could give thanks to God for, uh, but what I really wanted to give God thanks for is for you. I want to thank God for you. I thank God for this church. And Paul does this often throughout the epistle, so I'm not alone when I do this, but I want to thank God for you. Romans chapter 1 and verse 8 says, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 4 says, I thank my God always concerning you. Ephesians 1.16, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Philippians 1.3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Colossians 1, 3, and 4, we give thanks to God for the Father, the, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting Because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, 
beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Just over and over again, the Apostle Paul has these expressions of thanksgiving for the church. And my question is, does that represent your heart for the church? Are you thankful to God for the church? Do you give God thanks for the church? This is a biblical expression of thanksgiving, to give God thanks for the church, and that's a genuine representation of my heart for this church. I thank God for you, and I consider every member who is here to be a gift from God. Every member here is a gift from God. You are a gift to this church. And that's what Ephesians chapter 4 points out for us, uh, the gifts that God has given to the church through the people of the church, and there's not a better place to turn than the book of Ephesians for thanksgiving to the church. Uh, The book of Ephesians is a a church-saturated book. Uh, Even the discussion on marriage in Ephesians chapter 5 is said to represent the relationship between Christ and his church. I mean, the church is just all over the place. One author notes that Ephesians contains perhaps the most developed discussion and vision for the church. And another called the book of Ephesians, the closest thing that we have to a biblical ecclesiology in the New Testament. Ecclesiology being the study of the church. Uh, The church receives attention from the beginning of the book of Ephesians all the way through the end. Uh, Just to give you an overview, uh, starting in chapter 1, we have explained for us the vast riches that belong to us in Christ. Each aspect of our salvation is pulled out like one by one, like, a, like diamonds from a treasure chest and turned around to see all the facets of it. Chapter one lets us know that we've been blessed, chosen, predestined, redeemed, enlightened. We've been made recipients of an inheritance. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which guarantees our future salvation. And all of these blessings are found in union with Jesus Christ. But if you're united to Christ, guess who else you're united to? You're united to the church. You're united to the church. Down in verse 22, it says that he is head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In chapter 2, we're confronted with the misery that we've been saved out of. In uh, verses 1 through 10 in chapter 2, we learn that we were dead in our transgressions and sins, that we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Uh, But now we've been made alive. And down in verses 11 through 22, lets us know that we were once far off, that we were alienated from God, that we were separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. But now those who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And we're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens and members of God's household. And what is that household? It's the church. Verse 21 says, a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Then over in chapter 3, we learn about the mysteries that have been made known to us, that in the church both Jews and Gentiles would be fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers of the gospel. And why has God joined us together? Verse 10 says, in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church the rulers to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. God uses the church to show himself off in heaven. You know, so one day when you're walking around heaven and somebody says, uh, what are you doing here? (laughs) Or you look at somebody else and say, what are you doing here? (laughs) 
We can say it's all the manifold wisdom of God. This is the grace of God that I'm here. It exalts God, you know, that we're brought to heaven. And the rulers it speaks about, you know, the, even the heavenly beings will look at us and say, what are they doing here? <laughs> but it's all because of the grace of God. We've been called out by God, from the misery of sin into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. We've been made alive together in Christ. And this is what kind of leads us into chapter four, which kind of turns the corner. And after you've unboxed all these gifts of your salvation, you've just been basking in the glory of all that God has done for you and your salvation, you know, bringing you from death to life, all the riches that he's granted to you, that he's brought you from being far off to being brought near, expose you to the mysteries of heaven, the glory of heaven. Then we cross over into chapter four, which turns the corner and says, now how should you live? Knowing all the riches that have been given to you, how should you now live? Chapter four, look at verse one. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And what does that mean? What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy with which we've been called. Look at verse two, it explains it. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, for there is one body. If you've understood the riches that you've received in your salvation, do you think that you receive that just by yourself? Or do you look around and say that everybody else that's part of this body has also received these things. And that I need to have a proper appreciation for those who are part of the body. That, that I need to understand that there is one body, one spirit, just as I was called, and one hope of this calling. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And that's not talking about the way you were baptized, but rather being placed into the body of Jesus Christ. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Do you recognize that you've been connected to one body? That just as you give God thanksgiving for what you've received, that you need to give God thanks for those who've also received it, that I'm united with this body of believers who've all come into this inheritance. I need to have a, an appreciation for the body. Each one of us has been given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift, and each of us is a gift to one another. You need to give God thanks for the church. And then some of you might walk in here and have a hard time greeting one another. What is that about? <laughs> we're, we're one body. Are you kidding me? I shouldn't have quickly walked past anybody in this church because they're new, because they're different, because they're part of a different small group, because they don't fit into my stage of life. You will impoverish yourself because the believers here in this body are God's gift to you. This is how we are enriched. This is how we are encouraged. This is how your life will be blessed. And you limit the access to the riches of Christ when you limit your access to God's people. God's people are God's gift to you. In verse seven of chapter four, it says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Each member is a gift of grace, is intended to be a blessing to the other members of this body. Down in verse 16, 
It says, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. We are all connected and built up together in love by the proper working of each individual part. We all have to connect. That's how we work the the best when we're connecting together. As a church, we need to receive and appreciate the full benefit from the gifts that the Lord has given to this church. So let's take a look at our text together. I'll start at verse 7 and uh, read down. I'll read down all the way down to verse 16, but our focus for today will be uh, through verse 11. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 7. It says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Why don't you bow with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do come before you, Lord, and Father, we are so grateful for this opportunity that we have as a church to sit underneath your word. Father, this is the way that the head of the church speaks to the church. It's through the scriptures it's through the Bible, Lord, that we, we listen to the, to the head of the church, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that we would give attention uh, to the words of our Savior today. Uh, Father, that we would submit ourselves to the, to the King of heaven. And uh, Father, that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. There's a lot that we could learn from this text, and um, we could spend a lot of time here, but I want to make sure that you keep the, the big picture in view for today. Uh, There's two main points from this text that you need to keep in mind. Number one, uh, do you value, do you recognize the value of each member? That's in verses 7 to 10. And do you recognize the value of each leader? And we'll look at that in verse 11. There's more that's connected to that down through 16, but for today we'll just look at verse 11. And there's a lot of detail in between these two points, but if you keep the main points in mind, you shouldn't get lost. Uh, Number one, do you recognize the value of each member? Look at verse 7 again. But to each one of us, grace was given. Which means that each member has a special gift. Uh, The word grace, charis in Greek, is simply a word that means a gift or a kindness. And it's used here to speak about a a spiritual enablement, a spiritual ability, based on the context of the, the passage down in Verse 11, it specifically mentions that Christ gave, you know, some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Uh, So what we're talking about is a God-given capacity to perform a certain spiritual function, which is similar to what we find 
in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would come down on specific people to perform specific tasks. The Spirit of God would enable the prophet to speak for God or enable the judges to perform mighty works for God or enable a king to rule a nation for God. Remember, you know, David says, please don't remove your Holy Spirit from me because God had given him an enablement to do what God had given him to do. The Spirit of God fell upon these people for specific purposes. And in a similar way, each one of us, if we're believers, we've been given a spiritual empowerment to accomplish exactly what Christ desires for us to do. Back in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And God has specifically equipped us for exactly what he has designed us to accomplish. He doesn't send us to build bricks without giving us straw. He gives us all the necessary resources that we need uh, for our spiritual gifting in order to accomplish what he's given us to do. And to a certain extent, that gifting is specific for each individual. And it's interesting when you compare the different texts that give a listing of the spiritual gifts, uh, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4, that none of those lists are identical to the other lists. And what that lets us know is that they're broadly talking about the kinds of gifts rather than making an attempt to identify each person's gift specifically. So we have the, the broad categories of gifts, but not every kind of nuance of the gift. Even the Apostle Paul, who was given the gift of uh, apostleship, recognizes that his gift of apostleship wasn't like the other gifts of apostleship. He had a unique gifting for apostleship. In Romans chapter 11, in verse 13, he says, I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. There's a ministry that I have that other apostles may not have. So the apostles didn't come out of the factory, you know, everybody looking like everybody else, uh, but they were gifted to do what the Lord had uniquely intended them to do. In uh, verse 7, it even indicates that the, the gifting is unique. It doesn't say that each of us has a gift, but it stresses that grace was measured to each one of us individually, uh, which indicates that the portions are different for each individual. And that would make sense because if God has prepared good works for us to do, the good works that God has given for me to do might not look like the good works that God has given for you to do. So he has to measure it out, you know, specifically for me and for what God wants me to walk in. And the Spirit of God blends the specific giftings together for each individual like a, a master painter who knows how to shade it in perfectly, you know, the right mixture of, of colors. You know, sometimes I used to watch my daughter as she would mix, you know, paint, you know, coming out with different shades of this and that from the primary colors. And it's like, how do you get all these colors from this? You know, but the, the painter knows how to, how to mix the colors, you know, to say, oh, this is this shade of, of blue or this shade of red or this shade of whatever, right? The, the, the painter knows how to do that, and God knows how to shade us in perfectly. This is what I've given for you to do. And this is specifically how I'm going to uniquely fit you for your ministry. And it's actually one of the reasons I, I've never really liked those, uh, you know, spiritual tests, you know, those surveys where you, you know, fill out all the questions and find out what gift do I have. You know, number one, you can kind of like make it say whatever you want it to say. It's like, I want this gift. So it's like, you know, you answer the questions. I told you I'm a teacher. I told you, right? But, uh, you know, th those gift surveys, I don't think really do a lot of help, you know. Uh, but because uh, uh, God has also gifted you uniquely 
So there can be a blending. You know, it's not all like teaching. There's also some compassion and some service and, you know, some of another gift. It's like God has blended us together specifically for what he wants us to do, which lets us know that we are, in one sense, irreplaceable. Somebody else can do your job, but somebody can't do your job the way that you do your job. God has specifically suited you to do what he's called you to do. I mentioned this before, but I I tore my Achilles tendon back in 2011, and even though I had it repaired, it's never been the same as the original. (laughs) You know, the the original just was was different, and uh, each of us are an original. And, you know, some of you might understand, like, if there's an original piece of artwork, you know, there might be a lot of prints, but it's not worth the same as the original, right? Same thing with cars or whatever else you might, you know, have. It's like it's not worth as much as the original, you know, that the hand of the designer was on this one. And God's hand has been on you. You're an original piece. God has specifically gifted you for what he wants you to do. And all of us are originals, which places a special value on your gifting. Whether your gifting is teaching or exhortation or giving or leading or mercy, no one can do what you do the way that you can do it. You're an original piece that comes straight from the designer. And what Paul wants us to understand is that whatever gift you have, it's, it comes to you from the designer. It comes from the greatest person imaginable. Look again at verse 7. It says, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of whose gift? Christ's gift. Who's the, the one that this gift comes through? It comes through the greatest person imaginable. And we all understand that the value of a gift isn't just based on the gift itself, but who the gift comes from. Who does that gift come from? You know, a baseball jersey might just be any other baseball jersey until you figure out that it came from Babe Ruth. (laughs) And it was uh, sold for $5.64 million back in 2019. It makes a big difference who that jersey came from. That jersey came from, from from, from the Babe, right? And the gifts that we're given come from the Lord of all creation. There is no one greater. The, the, the gifts that you have come from the Lord of creation. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 says he's the head over all things to the church. Colossians 1.18 says he himself will come to have first place in everything. But not only did your gift come from the greatest person, it also came at the greatest expense. Look at verse 8. It says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And there's a lot that's contained in there, but don't get lost. Uh, What Paul is doing here is he's using the language of Psalm 68. So why don't you flip back uh, to Psalm 68, and this will help us to understand what's going on here. Psalm 68. Psalm 68 speaks of God's victories in the past uh, as the children of Israel journeyed through the wilderness and they finally came to inhabit Jerusalem and God is given the credit for winning all of their victories. If you look at Psalm 68 in verse 1, it says, Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, and let those who hate him flee before him. God is our warrior. He's the one who's arisen. He's the one who scattered our enemies. Let the enemies scatter before this great God. Look down at verse 7. It says, O God, when you 
went forth before your people. When you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel. And then if you drop down to verse 18, verse 18, and here's the language that we find in Ephesians 4. He says, you have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. And the picture that the psalm paints for us here is one of God as a warrior king. He goes out to defeat the enemies, returns with the spoils of war, and the children of Israel understood that it was God who won their victories for them. And whatever they claimed from their defeated enemies were God's gifts to them. And Paul picks up on the same picture in a similar way. He says that Jesus is your warrior king. And really, this is one of the passages that identifies Jesus with God. Here, identifying Jesus with, with God. And it says that Paul here is really kind of viewing Jesus Christ as the one who's ascended to heaven with the, 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 the victory. He's the one who's won the victory. Where did he win this victory? When he came down on the cross. Jesus won his victory over Satan on the cross. And it's pictured like all of us were these prisoners of war who were held captive by the enemy. If you look at verse uh, 6 in uh, Psalm uh, 68, at verse 6, it says, God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. He leads out the prisoners, those who were held captive, into prosperity. And who were the prisoners? According to Ephesians 4, we were. We were the, the prisoners. We were held captive by sin, by Satan. And Christ has set us free. And he leads us out in victory. And as he leads those prisoners into prosperity, what does he do? He starts to, to throw out the gifts. These are the gifts, the spoils of, of war. This belongs to you now. My victory becomes now your victory. You who are once prisoners of war held captive by Satan and death are now being led into freedom and prosperity. And Jesus is passing out the spoils of war to prove that the enemy has been defeated and Jesus is the reigning champion. And the ascension, the ascension of Christ, is like the victory parade. And Paul wants to make sure that we don't forget that the victory came at a great cost. Flip over to the book of Colossians. Book of Colossians. Just to talk about how Christ gained this victory, Colossians chapter 2. Look at chapter 2 and verse 13. It says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive. Together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Do you understand the picture? <laughs> Do you understand the picture here? That, that you were an enemy. You were once an enemy of God. You were hostile to the Lord. And you had this certificate of debt consisting of decrees which was hostile to us because we have sinned against this God. We've sinned against the Lord. We deserve punishment for our sins. But what has Jesus done? 
He's come down. He's taken that out of the way. The debt that you owed, he's taken it out of the way. And how did he take that debt out of the way? He took the debt out of the way by placing it on himself. That Jesus says, I will pay the debt that they owe and I will win the victory for them to free them from the enemy so that now they can be set free and they will gain the triumph through me. I am the one who's triumphed. I'm the one who's come down as the warrior. I'm the one who's defeated Satan. I'm the one who's, who's, who's defeated him on his own turf. The one who was once called the, the, the God of this world, right? The God of this world. I've come down and defeated him, and I defeated him on the cross. And now those who believe and trust in me, they can be set free. Set free from the, the penalty of, of their sin. Set free from death. Set free from the domain of Satan. Set free from the darkness and be brought into the marvelous light. And this is what Jesus Christ has done for us. And my question for you is, is, has Christ done that for you? Have you received the payment that he's made for you? Have, have you? have you participated in the victory that Christ has gained on the cross? There's only one way to participate in that victory, and it's by turning from your sins, recognizing that, yes, that certificate of decrees against me is right, that, that, that I am a sinner, and that every time I sin, it's just storing up wrath for the day of wrath, and that one day I'm going to have to pay for all of my transgressions against this holy God. And if you do not have a substitute in your place, you will bear the wrath for all of eternity, and there will be no victory at all for you. You will suffer the defeat, the same defeat that Satan and all of his hordes will face with an eternity in hell. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation? There is no other way. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says that there's one name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. All religions are not the same. All religions are not the same because every religion does not have a savior so many of the world's religions are about what we do. You know, uh, our good works, our obedience, you know, our pilgrimages, you know, our fasting and whatever else. You just kind of pile up your works, hoping that one day these things will be good enough to erase the debt that I owe to God. But there was only one payment that was satisfactory before God, and that was the payment of Jesus Christ, because there was only one who could offer to God perfection. God doesn't demand that we just be good enough. <laughs> and actually, in Isaiah 64, 6, it says that all of our righteousness is like what? Filthy rags. It's worthless to God. All the good things that you could pile up are worthless before the Lord of all glory. And that's why we needed a Savior, somebody who could come and win the victory for us. And that's what Christ has done. And for those of us who belong to him, who've received from him, we are now given the, the gifts of his victory. He passes out the gifts of his victory to us. Back in Ephesians chapter 4, it talks about his descending. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also who, he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And uh, what are we talking about when we talk about this 
you know, descending and ascending. I mean, what, what are we talking about with all of this, this language? In this, this text, heaven is pictured as the, the mountain that sits above the earth. You know, referred to as, uh, you know, the earth is referred to as the lower parts of the earth. And if you have any questions about that, you know, whether this ascending and descending, is that talking about heaven and earth? If you had any question about that, all you have to ask is where did Christ ascend to? When Christ left this earth, where did he ascend to? He ascended to heaven. So you just flip that around. When he descended, where did he descend to? He descended down to the earth. You know, so this is the descension, this descending down to the earth. So his descent was in the opposite direction of his ascension. So when it speaks about the lower parts of the earth, it's a reference to the earth itself. And again, it was on the cross that he defeated the host of hell, and it came at the cost of his life. Does that place a greater significance on the gifts that you have? Recognizing that Christ gave his life, that you would have the gifts, the spiritual gifts, the enablements that you have to serve the body of Christ, it cost Jesus his life to give you those. So how dare you walk around and say, well, hey, you know, all I am is, you know, all I do is administration or all I do is service or all I do is mercy. What do you mean that's all you do? Do you know, like, who gave you that gift? Do you know what, what cost that gift came to you? I mean, what you do has been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says, if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast about, for I'm under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Do you know what it means to be a steward? (laughs) That what you have doesn't belong to you and that you have to give an account for it one day when you give it back? Like the gifts that you have, one day you'll have to stand before the Lord and say, this is how I used what you paid your life for. That's that's sobering to think about. (laughs) That I have to give an account before the Lord of what he's given to me. And whatever gift you have, you need to understand that it's been measured out to you by the greatest person, purchased at the greatest cost, and you have a stewardship of those gifts. Don't worry if your gift doesn't look like what somebody else has. You don't need to answer for their gift. You just need to answer for yours. You need to answer for yours. And no one can do what you do the way that God has designed you to do it. So that's why I say again, every member is a gift. Every member is a gift of God. And uh, so that's point number one. Do you recognize the value of each member? Number two, do you recognize the value of each leader? Look at verse 11. It says, and he gave some as apostles and prophets and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, within the body of Christ, there's both unity and diversity. There's unity in our identity with Christ, our destiny, our testimony, but there's also diversity in the giftings. You know, so you have in uh, verses 4 to 6, the word one is constantly repeated. You know, verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One, 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 one. But then when we get down to verse 11, it's not one, it's some. You know, there's diversity. Some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So we go from this unity to the diversity. And here we have listed out, you know, these five You know, ministries, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. You know, I've had some people who've, uh, you know, asked me, you know, do you have a five-fold ministry in your church? Do you have a five-fold ministry? And and what they mean by that is, you know, do you have uh, apostles and prophets at your church? That's really what they're talking about. They're not asking if you have a pastor. It's like, I am the pastor. No, I want to know about the apostles and prophets, you know, like the pastors of the small fries. Do you have the apostles? 
There's a couple ways we can answer that question. The first is within the book of Ephesians itself. If you look over at Ephesians chapter, chapter 2, look at verse 19. Listen to what uh, the Apostle Paul says about the ministry of apostles and prophets. Verse 19, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. And this household is built on what? Verse 20, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And the simple question to ask yourself is how many times do you have to build the foundation? If you do it right, only once. (laughs) You only have to build the foundation once. Jesus only had to come one time to establish the church. We only needed one set of apostles and prophets. And if the foundation is still being built today, guess who also has to be here today? Jesus. Because how can you build the foundation without the cornerstone? So if, if we're still building all this on the apostles and prophets, I mean, where, where's Christ? Is Christ coming back to, you know, again, lay this foundation for us? The ministry of the apostles and prophets was a temporary and foundational ministry. Over in the book of Hebrews chapter 1, in verse 1, it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. And his son speaks to us through his authoritative representatives, who are the apostles. It's Jesus prayed in John 17, not only for, for these, you know, these disciples, but for those who will believe on me through their words. He understood that the, the church would be built on the words of the apostles. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says they were continually devoting themselves to what? The apostles' teaching, being built on the foundation of the apostles. And Apostle Paul argues that he was the last person to qualify as being an apostle. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 8, listen to what he says. He says, and last of all, last of all, last of all the what? Last of all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So we can say, in one sense, we still have the ministry of the apostles because we're built on the teaching of the apostles. The church today is built on their teaching. You know, if I want to hear Peter or Paul or John, all I got to do is open up my Bible and read. You know, I'm built on that same foundation. The apostles belong to me just like they did to the early church. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21 says, So then let no one boast in men. For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present, things to come. All things belong to you, speaking about those apostles, and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. So no, we don't have any living apostles or prophets among us, and neither does your church, regardless of what they might claim. (laughs) You know, we're not looking to appoint the, the right reverend, doctor, apostle, bishop, potentate, primate of the church. And I've actually seen that on a resume. I'm the, the potentate and the primate. It's like, what are, you, what are you talking about? You're the primate. Like, put them in a cage somewhere, you know? The primate. 
But we do have evangelists, pastors, and teachers to do the work of the ministry and to equip for the work of the ministry. Back in chapter 4, verse 11, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. For what? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. It's the leaders who equip the church to serve, which in turn builds up the body of Christ. And we're all a part of that process somewhere, right? You know, the leaders are equipping, you know, the, the saints are serving, and the body is being built up. That's the process. And to equip literally means to, to make someone completely adequate, to, to make sufficient for something, to, to furnish or to cause to be qualified. It was used originally of uh, uh, restoring something to its original condition. It was also as a, a medical term for the, the setting of bones. It was used for mending nets. If the body is to be built up, the leaders have to be freed up to train up. And it's a faithful and fruitful ministry. That's how it's designed to function. And even in a congregation of our size, I find it difficult to get around to every body that's here. And that's why we need more elders. And it's the same kind of principle that Jethro passed down to Moses back in Exodus 18 when Moses was sitting alone as the judge of the people of Israel. And Jethro's father-in-law came to him and said, hey, Moses, what you're doing isn't good here. You're going to wear yourself out and wear the people out. You know, you can't put up with this, and neither can the people standing in these long lines waiting to get to you. You know, find some faithful men. The task is too heavy for you to do it alone. Find faithful men, and it's the same principle that we find in the New Testament, that, that leaders are to be multiplied for the, the benefit and blessing of the church, and we can be thankful for that, that the Lord is still doing that work even today for the proper working of each individual part, causing the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And uh, we're grateful that that work is going on here today at Baltimore Bible Church. Um, like I said, we won't go through the whole thing today, Ephesians 4, but I did want to at least introduce that to us. Uh, but we're grateful for the work that the Lord is doing in the church by bringing us more leaders. Uh, I love what John Calvin said. He says, if you have some path of Christian maturity that includes long periods of isolation and silence and mystical experiences... It's the very opposite of what Scripture calls us to do as a church body. Our growth is in cooperation with the body, not in isolation from it. And John Calvin says this, that they are insane who neglect this means, who, who neglecting this means hope to be perfect in Christ, as is the case with fanatics who pretend to secret revelations of the Spirit and the proud who content themselves with private readings of Scripture and imagine that they do not need the ministry of the church. As, as a church, we rely on one another for our growth. We don't just isolate ourselves and say, hey, I'll grow by myself. That, that's an unnatural growth. It's an unnatural growth to say, I'm going to do it by myself. It's an unnatural growth to say, I'm going to uh, uh, neglect the, the study of, of Scripture um, and try to give into some kind of mystical experience, and that's how I'm going to grow. That is an unnatural growth. You know, the growth that God has designed is that we would be part of the body, connected to the body, and that as connecting to the body that we would be connecting with the members of the body to, to help them to grow and that we would be equipped by leaders to equip us for the, the service of the body of Christ. That's how God has designed us. And I'll just say one more thing is what's the goal for all this? We'll come back to this. But what's the goal for all this? Look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, 
to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What, what is the, the goal of Christian maturity? The goal of your Christian maturity is to look like Jesus. That, that's what you want. That, that's what we're designed for. That's what we're intended for. I love uh, Romans chapter 8. You know, you look at verse 28, you know, all things, you know, uh, God causes all things to work together for the good. To those that love God are called according to his purpose. And then people stop. You know, but, but what is the good? What is the good? Verse 29, he also predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. What is the good in all things? What is God working in all things? That you would look like Jesus. That's what God is designing. That you would look like the image of his son. Same thing talked about in uh, uh, Philippians 3.21, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. God has designed us to look like Christ. And the more that we can be conformed into Christ is the more that God himself is glorified. Colossians 1.28 says we proclaim him. This is the ministry of the apostles. He says we proclaim him. This is the ministry of the word. Admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man what? Complete in Christ. That's what the ministry of the word does. It, it conforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. And 1 John 3 and verse 2 says, when he appears, and that's the day where we finally cross the finish line, when he appears, we will be like him. We will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We're to grow and to continue to grow until we finally look like Jesus when we finally cross that finish line into glory. And oh, I want to see him, right? <laughs> to look upon his face. That's, that's the day that we're looking for when we're finally transformed into the image of Christ and I finally look like my Savior. That's something that we can all rejoice in. And even today I mentioned a, a brother in Africa, Conrad Mbewe's son, um, Wansa Mbewe, who's crossed that finish line. And now he's in the presence of Christ. And he looks like Christ. He's finally crossed. Amen. You can clap for that. <laughs> Amen. He looks like Christ. And one day we too, we too will look like Christ. But until then, the Lord has given us pastors and evangelists and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, to the building up of that body of, of Christ. And we're trying to get as close as we can on this side of eternity until we finally cross that line into glory. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.